The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Dr. Richard Dio. Dr. Dio is Professor of Family Medicine, Internal Medicine, and Public Health at Oregon Health Science University. He's also the co-author of Hope or Hype, The Obsession with Medical Advances and the High Cost of False Promises. Dr. Dio here is here today to talk about his latest book, Watch Your Back, How the Back Pain Industry is Costing Us More and Giving Us Less, and What You Can Do to Inform and Empower Yourself in Seeking Treatment. Welcome to Health Watch, Dr. Richard Dio. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. So let's start with one of the natural assumptions that a lot of uh, patients and doctors make, that the more some, something is evaluated, the better it is imaged, the um, better the outcomes will be. Uh, you, you talk a lot about MRIs. It's something that a lot of patients ask for when they have back pain and a lot of uh, doctors perform, but there's a downside potentially to doing MRIs in a lot of cases. Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, that's very important. MRIs can seem almost like magic because they they do provide accurate information about the health of many uh, parts in the body and and some stunning images of of the inside of the body. Uh, Nonetheless, a lot of professional societies, including even the radiology societies, recommend very limited use of MRI scanning for the low back. And and the reasons mainly are not about saving money, but about limiting confusion. The problem is that many normal, pain-free people have terrible-looking MRI scans. So most of us, uh, most normal adults, have bulging or degenerated discs. Uh, And these are really mainly signs of aging. They're like wrinkles in gray hair. And maybe a third of us even have a herniated disc, but but no evidence of back pain or any leg pain that we call sciatica. And so when we see these things on an MRI scan, it's important to realize that they may not really be the cause of pain at all, and yet both doctors and patients may find the MRI picture very alarming, and that can set off a cascade of more tests, injections, surgery, uh, and other interventions, uh, some of which have complications and problems associated with them. And, in fact, several studies have demonstrated that that, that is exactly what happens uh, when MRI scans are done in the absence of a, of a very good uh, clinical indication or reason for ordering the test. Uh, that is, no improvement in patient outcomes, but exposing them to important complications. So uh, I would argue that the MRI scans really should be saved for some very specific situations and avoided for most people that have back pain. And, and what would that smaller subset of situations be where you would think an MRI is the obvious choice to go? Yeah. Well, probably the most important one is somebody who has a history of cancer in the past. And that's because cancer can spread to the spine, and that's something that we would certainly want to discover early on. Another example would be someone who has uh, a fever, a new fever that's associated with the back pain, and this is a new symptom. Uh, That could be a sign of a spinal infection, uh, and that would be important to discover, certainly. 
there's some other situations where uh, there's actually uh, frank weakness of the muscles in both legs or difficulty with controlling urinary function, uh, and those would be indications for doing an MRI scan early on. But in the absence of some of these more severe kinds of problems, uh, it really is very uh, unlikely to be helpful and, and may actually lead to mischief. So really, if somebody goes in getting an MRI with none of these symptoms that you just mentioned, but say they have persistent back pain and you find a degenerative or herniated or bulging disc, uh, often that is not actually the cause of the pain. And even after a surgery, their, their pain may persist. Is that, am I understanding that, correctly? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's certainly one of the risks is that we, we see something that looks alarming. Uh, we think that's the cause of pain, but in fact may not be the cause of pain. So fixing it, uh, like with an operation, uh, may not actually solve the problem. And that may explain why a lot of people have back surgery and yet continue to have back problems afterwards. Well, let's talk a little bit about the section in Watch Your Back where you talk about uh, the natural course of of illness. So the passage of time, we, we have some knowledge on acute and persistent back pain, what the course of, of an illness is, it would typically look like. And a lot of people get better without any intervention. So tell us a little bit about uh, back pain and, and time. Yeah, well, that, that also is a very important thing that, that many people don't realize is that, that time is in your favor uh, when you have back pain. Uh, most people are going to get better. Uh, and they'll they'll get better generally in a matter of weeks or months. And when I say get better, uh, I mean that, that the pain will improve and their ability to do their normal activities will improve. Many people in, in reality continue to have recurrent episodes of back pain. They'll have flare-ups of their back problems, uh, recurrences, uh, and and that's sort of something that we expect. Uh, but, but again, those episodes are likely to resolve on their own given time. Uh, so many people think that once they start having back pain, they're going to be permanently disabled. And yet the reality is that most people really are going to improve substantially just with natural healing processes that go on over time. So uh, when I see somebody that has a very recent onset of a back problem, uh, I'll try to reassure them that, in fact, they're going to get better. Uh, and 90% of the time, that's true. Uh, the very small fraction who don't improve uh, often have complicated problems and uh, require a, a lot of more intense intervention, but, uh, but that's a very small minority of, of everyone that develops back problems. And you even cite some research that suggests that herniated discs can improve with time as well, something that perhaps previously we thought would continue to be herniated. Yeah, that's a good point. The, many people just assume that if they have a herniated disc, they have to have surgery, uh, and it's not going to improve otherwise. But, but in fact, uh, there have been several studies that show uh, that MRI scans done over time uh, on people who have a herniated disc but have not had surgery actually show improvement over time. The, the herniated part of the disc, the part that's sticking out and pressing on a nerve, actually begins to shrink over time, uh, and the symptoms begin to improve over time. And within a matter of months, uh, most people have dramatic improvement on the MRI scan 
in the uh, the part of the disc that's herniated, even without any kind of surgery or other intervention. So, so again, the, the natural healing process really is in your favor. Can you speak about some of the sham surgery studies that have been done where one person would get a surgery and another person would just get an incision but not know that they actually didn't get the surgery? Yeah, this has been done in a couple of situations, not that I'm aware of uh, with regard to back surgery in particular, but for example, there have been uh, trials where uh, patients who had knee arthritis underwent arthroscopic surgery uh, using a a narrow uh, arthroscope to, to perform the surgery. Uh, and and one group got the real surgery and the other group got a, a fake operation basically that, that mimicked the procedure but actually didn't do anything. And in fact, the recovery was uh, essentially identical in the two groups, the group that had the real surgery and the group that did not. And it was really a striking testimony to the ability of the body to heal on its own and, and the importance, really, of sort of a placebo effect, uh, even of having a, a surgical procedure. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Dr. Richard Dio about his latest book, Watch Your Back, How the Back Pain Industry is Costing Us More and Giving Us Less. Uh, Dr. Dio, talk to us a little bit about the research on, on spinal fusion, one of the more common uh, back surgery procedures. Yeah, spinal fusion surgery has has really increased rapidly over the past few years, uh, and many people don't realize that it's a a more invasive type of surgery than even regular uh, disc surgery. Uh, it's basically an operation to to fuse two vertebrae together with bone grafts, and as it's done these days, it most often involves the insertion of some metal plates and screws that, that hold the vertebrae together in addition to the bone grafts. And uh, so this is actually a fairly invasive type of surgery. What, what many people don't realize is that it's often done because of MRI findings that, uh, as we talked about earlier, uh, may or may not really be the cause of a patient's back pain. And, and perhaps for that reason, uh, for some common uh, indications for this type of surgery, the, the success rate really hovers around 50% or so, uh, about the same as a coin toss. And because it's such invasive surgery, a substantial number of patients have complications of some sort, like scarring or nerve injury or problems with the metal screws and the rods that are sometimes inserted during surgery that can cause ongoing pain. So, so in fact, uh, I remind people that uh, when, when Consumer Reports surveyed their own readers uh, who had had spine surgery, uh, about 60% were either very satisfied or completely satisfied, and that's a, a much lower percentage than we see with hip or knee replacement operations. I would imagine doing being involved in some of this research yourself and also writing Watch Your Back that you're probably getting some blowback from the back neurosurgery community. Is that true that um, this has riled some people up? Well, certainly over my career, it's riled up a lot of people, and, and I've certainly had blowback. Uh, uh, early in my career, I really did cross swords with uh, some surgical societies over uh, some of the research findings that we had. Uh, 
and and in fact at one point the government agency that was funding our research really uh, took a huge budget cut because of political activity and lobbying uh, against the agency uh so so certainly there's been blowback interestingly enough though uh in recent years just in the last year or two we we've actually begun to see a decrease in rates of spinal fusion surgery uh nationwide the reason for that isn't so clear and it's it's been a small dip so far but it's the first time in 20 years basically that we've seen any decrease in rates of fusion surgery so i think uh, even in the surgical community, many are becoming much more cautious about doing spinal fusion surgery in particular. Well, can you talk, if we were to back up a little bit and just talk about back surgeries in general, can you talk about the problem of the profit motive in neurosurgery and the history of kickbacks and and other issues that um, make this a, a more fraught issue in terms of getting good advice? Yeah, there's there really is a, an important history in this regard. The, um, the there are companies who manufacture these metal plates and screws and rods that are often used in the course of fusion surgery, and these are fabulously profitable uh, devices. They're sold for many times more than the actual manufacturing costs, and uh, so so it's very profitable. And uh, the companies that manufacture them have been very aggressive about uh, promoting them uh, among surgeons. Uh, there have been several companies that actually have uh, been accused of uh, providing kickbacks to surgeons for using their products in particular. None of the companies have actually admitted any wrongdoing, but several have paid multi-million dollar settlements with the federal government uh, over these allegations. And, and the kickbacks come in the form of uh, what have been labeled uh, by the prosecutors as sham royalties and sham patents, uh, sham uh, consulting agreements, uh, sham research agreements, and so forth. So uh, they come in a variety of forms, but, uh, but at least the allegation is that they've been uh, really payments for using particular products. So... Uh, it, it's often not clear to patients, I think, that their own doctors may face a conflict of interest in making decisions about whether to do an operation and, and if they decide to do an operation, what type of operation and what type of, uh, of implants to use in the course of that surgery. So it, it's a, often a complex decision-making process. There's even a, a lesser conflict of interest just in the reimbursement model, I think, in the sense that you're going to get way more reimbursement for a surgical intervention than referral for physical therapy or to suggest watchful waiting and exercise. Absolutely true. Uh, of course, I think many people would, would sort of intuitively understand that the reimbursement for doing an operation is typically more than the reimbursement for doing uh, physical therapy, for example. Uh, but but what many may not realize is just how dramatic the difference is between surgical and non-surgical treatments. And in particular, spinal fusion surgery uh, is often very profitable for hospitals and the doctors, as well as the manufacturers of the devices that are used in the surgery. So uh, there's, there's a real financial incentive uh, to be doing this type of surgery. Even with 
dubious outcomes, essentially. Like I know you mentioned that uh, degenerative disc problems, spinal fusion isn't really the ideal solution for them, but is often used as the solution. Yeah, that's probably the most controversial uh, reason for doing fusion surgery. And I should say here that, that there are some good reasons for doing a spinal fusion operation, um, in particular, various types of spinal deformities uh, may really benefit from spinal fusion operations. But one of the most common reasons for doing the surgery is just worn-out discs. And again, uh, the problem with that is that most adults, most of us actually have some worn-out discs uh, on an MRI scan. So again, it's like uh, gray hair and wrinkles. It's something that nearly all of us have. And uh, so it can be misleading to just assume that that's the cause of the pain. Nonetheless, uh, that has been the most rapidly increasing reason for doing fusion operations in recent years and um, maybe part of the reason why the success rate is uh, often modest at best. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Health Watch, and we're talking today to Dr. Richard Dio, professor of internal medicine and public health at Oregon Health Science University, about his latest book, Watch Your Back, how the back pain industry is costing us more and giving us less. Let's talk about some other non-surgical interventions that are commonly given um, for people with back pain. You, you have a section on, on cortisone shots something that a lot of people seek out because of their, their short to midterm benefit for pain relief. Um, tell us about some of the uh, downsides of getting cortisone shots. Yeah, the, the cortisone shots have become very popular, and the, the most common way that they're provided is with an injection that's, that's uh, actually uh, into the spinal uh, region, very close to the spinal cord. Uh, and close to any uh, abnormal discs that may be seen on an MRI scan. The, the, the limitations are, are, first of all, that, that the benefits on average seem to be pretty modest. If we look at uh, the randomized trials that have been done, and, and there are several, it looks as if the benefit of uh, these cortisone injections compared to just a, a placebo injection is small and also fairly short-lasting. That is, uh, patients don't seem to get any long-term relief. It's mostly just a matter of weeks uh, that they may get this small benefit. The, the downside, of course, is that it may actually aggravate other medical problems. Uh, there's a good evidence that these injections can increase blood sugar, and of course that's a problem for anyone who has diabetes or a tendency towards diabetes. And there's uh, the occasional, happily very rare situation of infections that can result from these uh, injections. Uh, some some people may recall that just uh, a little over a year ago there was actually an outbreak of uh, infections due to these injections because of a contaminated uh, drug solution that was being widely used. Uh, and those caused very serious infections and in some cases uh, some deaths. So uh, uh, the risk is small, but, but certainly it's not a risk-free procedure, uh, again, with relatively small benefits on the average. Well, when we had Gretchen Reynolds on the health and fitness columnist for the New York Times, she cited some studies around cortisone injections and higher relapse rates and, and 
suggested the possibility that maybe with us not feeling the pain, we continue to move without the warning signal and worsen a, a joint problem because of the absence of the pain. I don't know if that's actually true, but it was interesting that the, the possibility that you could actually have a uh, higher incidence of relapse by taking the shots than not getting them. Well, it's an interesting theory. I, I, I'm not aware of evidence that that's true. Um, and, and, of course, there are some physicians who would offer these injections with, with sort of a different rationale, which is, gosh, uh, maybe if we decrease the level of pain, you actually would would intentionally be able to increase your activity level and engage in more of an exercise program that might give you more long-term benefits. So it's sometimes given with that rationale that it would actually help to help to increase activity. Uh, again, I think we really don't have much evidence one way or the other in that regard. Sure. Well, let's talk about uh, activity. Uh, originally, people believed that bed rest was good for back pain, and that is been mostly debunked at this point. So what what is a recommendation for people around exercise and pain that they might be experiencing during exercise and outcomes? Yeah. Well, you're right. Uh, the uh, bed rest really was the recommendation when I started my career, uh, and we just sort of argued about whether it should be one week or two weeks of bed rest, and nobody really questioned whether whether it was necessary at all. But there now have been several studies that really show that bed rest doesn't speed up the recovery from back pain at all and, in fact, may slow it down. And the better recommendation is for people to try to continue their normal activities as much as possible. So in the case of acute back pain, meaning a recent onset of back pain, um, probably the best recommendation is just to try to continue normal activities as much as possible. Walking is a, a good example of, of what uh, really people should try to maintain. But once the acute episode is over and uh, the pain may become more persistent, then I, I believe that exercise really becomes the mainstay of therapy. Uh, there have been dozens of trials now uh, comparing patients who do or don't get exercise. And um, the, the group who gets the exercise uh, almost in every case has less pain, less disability, better long-term uh, functioning and uh, ability to engage in their daily activities. And furthermore, the exercise may actually help to prevent recurrences of pain and probably reduces the uh, problem of work disability as well. So uh, I think early on, at least, when people start an exercise program, it helps to have some supervision and some coaching, and that often comes from someone like a physical therapist. But in the long term, I really encourage people to, in, to sort of pursue the exercise that they like best and that they're most likely to stick with. And we have good research studies, actually, that show that uh, people who have back pain might benefit from swimming or bicycling or yoga or Pilates or Tai Chi or water aerobics. Uh, and, and all of these actually seem to be effective in, in the long term. What are some other treatments that have been shown to be good for chronic persistent pain? Well, you, you know, one that, that people sort of shy away from and, and is often stigmatized is simply um, uh, talk therapy, if you will, uh, a form of counseling that's often called cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, the idea is not sort of traditional psychotherapy at all, 
but really an effort to educate patients about the usual causes of back pain and to help change some behaviors that may actually be contributing to the back problem. So uh, it's often an effort to improve sleep patterns, uh, improve relaxation, uh, help patients to really change their lifestyle in a way that often has important benefits for uh, the long-term outcomes. And in fact, the combination of exercise plus uh, this cognitive behavioral therapy often seems to be the most effective uh, long-term uh, success uh, for treating chronic back problems. And, and what advice, Dr. Dio, do you have for patients around the use of pain medications uh, in managing uh, persistent pain? Well, pain medications are, are certainly attractive, and it certainly would, would be nice if we could just take a pill and solve the problem. But in fact, that's turned out to be a disappointment as well for many patients. I think the most important uh, type of painkiller that people are familiar with are opioid-type medications or narcotic pain medications, and, and there's often an assumption that that will solve the problem. Uh, however, we're learning that in the long run, these drugs may actually begin to lose their effectiveness. and. Uh, patients uh, who have used these drugs for quite a while actually become dependent on them, which means if they were to stop taking the medication, they actually experience very unpleasant withdrawal symptoms, and yet they continue to have still persistent pain problems. So uh, many patients on long-term opioid medication continue to have pain but find it very difficult to stop taking the medications. And, in fact, we've, we've seen studies that suggest that they are no more likely to be able to get back to work or back to their normal activities, uh, normal daily functioning. So it looks as if the long-term use of uh, these opioid medications is really pretty, uh, pretty discouraging, uh, not a very successful treatment. Uh, other medications uh, that, that may be helpful are things that people often dismiss, uh, often over-the-counter medications like ibuprofen or naproxen that are available that have an anti-inflammatory effect as well as a pain-relieving effect uh, and often can be very helpful. So uh, I, I don't discourage patients from trying those things if they seem to help. And, and lastly, Dr. Dio, in the last minute or two of our show, are, do you have any suggestions on in terms of policy advocacy that you'd like to mention? Well, you know, I, I'll, I'll sort of put in a plug here for some important features in the Affordable Care Act or, or Obamacare, if you will, uh, one, one of which is actually the funding of a new organization called the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, which has just been getting underway for the last couple of years, uh, but has some real promise, I believe, for helping us to compare uh, real treatments in, in real practice and understand what's most beneficial for patients. So it doesn't focus on laboratory discoveries, but really uh, improving the way that care gets delivered to patients. And there are some other uh, innovations that have to do with uh, reducing the costs of care that I think have some real promise. So uh, I think these are the kinds of things that, uh, that uh, I would hope people really can support well, it was a pleasure having you on Health Watch today, Dr. Dio. I, I really enjoyed Watch Your Back. 
Thank you very much. My pleasure. We are talking today to Dr. Richard Dio, the author of Watch Your Back, How the Back Pain Industry is Costing Us More and Giving Us Less, and What You Can Do to Inform and Empower Yourself in Seeking Treatment. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naming, your host. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday Morning Radio Zine.